0: Continuing a series we started called One. And uh, we've just been talking about in uh, John chapter 17, we'll look at it in a minute, um, how God, how Jesus' prayer that we would be one is really the secret to the church being everything it was called to be and being everything to the world it was called to be. How, how many of you um, grew up as I did going on vacation and when you went on vacation, it's not like vacations today. We take all these exotic vacations and, you know, do, do all these incredible locations. When I was a kid, when we went on vacation, we went to see relatives. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Anybody remember that? Well, uh, you know, I was kind of raised in that time in American history where everybody lived in your town, but somewhere in the middle of my life, people started becoming mobile and moving to other cities. And when they'd move, you'd never dream of taking your one or two weeks vacation and going somewhere. You'd go see them. And so, right? You remember that? We'd go, we'd go, and maybe it's because I was poor. I don't know. Maybe we couldn't afford anything else. I don't know. But we just go see our relatives, and now people take vacations to get away from their relatives, <laughs> right? You notice, how that, you notice how that's changed? Well, all of my childhood vacations, all of my childhood vacations are memories in visiting family members except one. When I was in eighth grade, my parents took me and my best friend Donnie from school uh, took us to Dogpatch USA in Arkansas. Come on, somebody. You, you've been to Disney. You think that's something. You hadn't lived till you've been to Dogpatch. Anybody ever heard of Dogpatch USA? Anybody even heard of it? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, Little Abner and that whole deal. We went to Dogpatch USA, and, you know, we had our tube socks on up to our knees with the stripes around the top and our you know, our flybacks. And you know what I'm talking about? That whole thing and, like, football jerseys and, it, it was a, I pray there's no pictures left. Uh, but we, we went to Dogpatch. And uh, there was this one ride kind of in the middle of the park. And I'd never heard of it. I hadn't been to a bunch of theme parks. I'd never heard of it. I'd never seen it. And my buddy Donnie said, oh, man, hey, let's go, let's go look at this. And we climbed this, these little steps and got on this platform. And we looked down, and it was this giant bowl, like this giant room with no doors, and the whole room was in a circle. There were no corners. And you, the top was open, so you could look down in there and see what was going to happen. And we were looking down into that big room with no, with no doors, and people were in there. And that thing started spinning around like this. You know, it was, you know what I'm talking about? A Gravitron kind of thing. started spinning around, and people started to stick to the wall. And the floor came out from under them and just started to sink below their feet. And I thought, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. They just stick to the wall like cotton candy. You know what I'm saying when you did a little bowl? And he said, oh, we got to do it. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know about that. Well, well, of course, you know what happened. We got in there, and that thing started moving. It, you know, the engine started. Who knows what was running it? You know? A couple of hamsters were on a bicycle you know, behind there, keeping it going. And, and man, we started, to, and I could feel, i never felt anything like that in my life. The centrifugal force started to pin us up against the wall. And the next thing you know, you know my, my face starts to go back. I can't pull my hands off the wall. And then, and then the floor starts to drop out. I thought, we're going to die. Like, you can't not stand. You have to have ground. And it, it, it dropped about four feet. My feet are just dangling there. I'm looking between my feet. It's four feet straight down to the floor that's dropped out below us. And I look over to this girl next to me, and she has sunglasses. Her sunglasses just stuck up the thing like that. And I went man, we are, we are in trouble. And, and I can remember sitting there in that thing, and all I could think about was, you know, just hold on. And here in a minute, things will go back to normal. And of course, as the thing started slowing down, you could feel your body coming back to you. You know, the floors, you're just praying, floor, please come back. I don't want to drop four straight feet, and have carpet burned down my back, you know, going to the ground. And it, of course, it came up and met there, and You know, I could feel the blood starting to flow normally back in my body, and my buddy Donnie looks at me and says, let's do it again. And I thought, oh, man, I don't know. You know, I don't know, it's a lot. I tell you that story this morning because it kind of reminds me of the times we're living in. In just a short time, we've endured incredible change. And sometimes to me, it feels like the church is waiting for everything to just go back to the way it was. Sometimes it feels like to me the church's posture and our culture is just hold on and in a few minutes the floor will come back up and the room will stop spinning and everything will go back to the way it was and and, and rather than engaging the culture that we live in today. So we've endured a lot of change, uh, a lot of shifts I guess I would say. We've shifted from radio, you know, to the internet. Did you know a hundred years ago, the majority of Americans did not have electricity? One hundred years ago, a person who's a teenager in that time frame could not wrap their brain around me telling you to flip on your Wi Fi this morning and you can be 24 7 connected to all the information in the world instantaneously in a device in your hand. They didn't have electricity, they didn't have a light bulb or an air conditioner, or a refrigerator. That's a giant change. Also, we've seen a shift in our culture from a stance where there is absolute truth to where there is no absolute truth. And we've seen a huge shift that I think we dramatically underestimate from rural culture to urban culture. Did you know in five years, in 2025, five years from now, 61% of the people on earth will live in a city, will live in an urban setting. There are gigantic implications to culture being shaped by urban centers rather than rural areas. And then we've seen a giant shift in our culture from being a Christian culture to being a non-Christian culture. And we're still in that transition. So I'll give you an example. Generation Z, those that are about whatever, 19 or 20 years old, and down, that generation is the first generation in American history that is post-Christian. That there are more people in that generation not Christian than are Christian. So when the, when the last of Gen X becomes adults, you are going to see a gigantic shift in our country. Gigantic. And as they move their way up, you'll see a, a, an ongoing shift. One of the largest studies done in American life Uh, to identify American religious affinity. It's called the American Religious Identification Survey. It tracked from 1990 to 2008, 18 years. And let me tell you what they found. They found the only religious group in America to grow in all 50 states is the group that claimed no religious affiliation. That's the only group to grow in all 50 states. And by the way, it almost doubled. So that we have huge cultural shifts. So just hold on and wait till the floor comes back underneath you. Is not a strategy that's going to work. So how has the church weathered all this? I, I've got a few uh, stats I'll give you this morning. Fifty-nine percent of all American churches are plateaued or declining. Fifty-nine percent. are growing mostly through transfer. So in other words, 31% of the churches that are growing are helping the declining churches decline faster. They're just, uh, my church is better than your church. Come over here. Your church is dying anyway. Come to my church. So 90% of the church is just trading people. 10% of the church in America is growing through conversion. So in this new world, our greatest challenge is not in learning new insights. It is in unlearning what we thought we knew. So, in this series, one, we've talked about how God has called us to be one tribe. So, He calls every generation to walk in unity together in the church. Last week, we talked about how God called us to be one people. So, God has called people from every race and every background to live in unity and, and in diversity at the same time. So, now today, we're going to talk about one mission. John chapter 17, verse 21. That all of them may be one. Jesus is praying before he leaves the earth. His prayer for the church, for all believers, is that they would all be one as the Father and Jesus is one. Now now look at verse 23. Then, he talks about complete unity and total unity and deep connection. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. So even in Jesus' prayer that the church would be unified, there was always an outward-looking purpose. There was an outward-looking reason. So the reason that God wants us to be one tribe and the reason that God wants us to be one people is because He's given us one mission. And that mission is to impact the world. In Ephesians 4:4. Uh, Paul said it this way, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope. What does that one hope mean that he's talking about? That one hope is the hope of the gospel. So we have one mission, and it's to bring lost people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So even to take it a step clearer, let me tell you what our one mission is not. Our one mission is not divine healing. It's not miracles, it's not spirit baptism, and it's not figuring out when Jesus is going to come back. All those things support the mission, but none of those are the mission. Here's why. You can go to heaven sick. Thank God. Right? Thank God you don't have to be healed before you go to heaven, or if you don't get healed, you don't get to go to heaven. You can go to heaven sick, you can go to heaven broken, you can even go to heaven as a baby Christian. But guess how you can't go to heaven? Lost. So what does that tell us? That means that bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus is the single most important thing that the church can do. We have one mission. If you read the letters in the New Testament that Paul the Apostle wrote, you're going to find three um, impacting forces on his life. Paul's life was shaped and guided and driven by three things. Paul was Spirit-led. He was led by the Holy Spirit. Paul was Scripture-led. Oftentimes, you'll hear him talk about the power of the gospel and on and on and on. And Paul was also mission-led. Now watch. Anytime the church loses, forgets, dismisses any one of those three, we become ineffective. You take the scripture away, we're ineffective. You stop following the Holy Spirit, we're ineffective. You stop being mission-driven and mission-led, we become a hyper-spiritual, inward-focused Christian club. You take any of those three away, and we lose the effectiveness of the church. In 1 Corinthians, we can see how Paul was mission-led. He was led by this one mission. 1 Corinthians 9, just listen to these verses. Paul said, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. Why? To win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Why? So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. So as to win those not having the law. 22. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. To the, I want you to look for the word all. Okay, A-L-L. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some to do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. Mission shaped, the mission shaped Paul the Apostle. And and you know what the mission was shaped by? The culture. So Paul said, if the culture's Jewish, I'll become like that culture. If If I'm talking to slaves, I'll become like that culture. If I'm talking to uneducated, I'll become like that culture. If I'm talking to people who don't know what the law is, I'll become like that culture. So the culture shaped the mission and the mission shaped Paul. So the mission should shape every area of the church and it should shape every Christian's life. Now if you're taking notes this morning, let me give you two thoughts on the mission and then we'll talk at the end about what can we do. Number 1, God is on a mission so since, since the Garden of Eden, God has been on a mission to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Him. So let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Before college football, so sorry about yesterday. Before America, before cities or nations existed, God was on a mission. And God will continue to be on a mission after all that stuff's gone. So this morning, let me try to summarize the whole Bible for you in five minutes. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on. In the Old Testament, shortly after Adam and Eve sinned, God was already on a mission reaching a man named Abraham who was not even a Jew. He wasn't even among God's chosen people, ethnically or religiously, and God was already on a mission reaching him. Noah was used to deliver humanity into a new world. Joseph delivered his family uh, from the impending famine and his whole family line. David was the righteous king who delivered Israel from its enemies. Hosea contended at an auction block trying to buy his wife back out of the consequences of her own sin. Esther came to power at just the right time to deliver God's people. Ruth is redeemed by following her mother-in-law's God. And all these servants have one thing in common. They all heard God's voice calling them to the mission, to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Him. And these people are metaphors for us of God's unwavering love and His intention to bring all people back into relationship with Him. The apex of God's work in the Old Testament is in Exodus when his people were brought out of oppression and slavery. And it's clear from the beginning that God's mission was not just his mission, but it was also his people's mission. Look at Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought, you see this, I brought you to myself. There it is. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is God saying to them? God's original plan, and that plan still stands, is for every person who's in a relationship with him to be a priest. What does that mean? To be a minister of his gospel to the world around Him and to bring people in relationship with Him. All right, now here's the New Testament. This is, that, that was uh, intermission between the old and the new. Here's the new. W- in the New Testament, we see God who's con- still on mission. The difference is the apex of the New Testament is when God sent His Son Jesus to the earth to serve, to teach, to do miracles, to suffer, to sacrifice, to die, and to resurrect in order to restore broken humanity. So God revealed his love through the greatest measure understood by people anywhere in the world, and it is self sacrifice. So in the New Testament, we see Jesus on a mission, and he did the same thing the Father did in the Old Testament. Luke 19 Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So after Jesus died, he went to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit to fill the church. The church picked up where Jesus left off. Uh, if you've been following us at Kingwood for a little while, the last two summers, we've been studying the book of Acts in a series we've called Viral. And those early followers of Jesus were so committed to the mission that Jesus was on that they, they took the gospel from one church in Jerusalem to 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands in 30 years. Because they were on the same mission he was on. So God's on a mission, and he's been on the mission since the Garden of Eden, and in all places and all times, he's called all his people to be part of that mission. I I I can remember uh, early in my own Christian life, when I first got saved... I, I didn't know any—as a, a child, was a part of a very small church who wasn't, didn't reach out at all. They just kind of did church, and that church eventually died and closed. And that's the church I grew up in. It was about 35 or 40 people. And then when I was 12, I dropped out, and at 15 years old, um, I found Jesus. And when I found Jesus, I was so broken, and I was so lost, and I was so empty— I I found the greatest joy of my life and I was overwhelmed with joy and peace and excitement about what God had done in my life. But it never dawned on me that God had a purpose for my life other than knowing Him. And when God began to call me, I don't mean into ministry like this, but just as a believer, just as a regular, everyday, ordinary 15-year-old believer, when He began to call me into his mission to share what he had done in my life with my friends at school and with my family, it confused me. And it overwhelmed me because I thought, wait, 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 wait. I didn't get into this, you know, to you know, make people do what they don't want to do or to brainwash anybody. I didn't get into this for all this. But you know what I didn't know? God in his wisdom was leading me into a life that was better than the life that I had. Here's what we confuse sometimes. We think God sometimes just wants to use us. Can I tell you the best life that you and I can ever live is to be called into the life where we affect eternity. It's not only better for the people around you. This is what I learned as a 15, 16-year-old. It's also better for you. It's a better life. And that's what he calls us into. So, number two, God is calling you to join his mission. Early on in Jesus' mission, he began to lay the groundwork to transfer his mission to the, his followers' mission that took the gospel in 30 years everywhere. Matthew 4:19, Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Now, this wasn't at the end of the three years that Jesus walked with his disciples. This was was at the beginning. This was at the front. Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of people. And they're like, wait, that's two things. (laughs) Follow you and fish. And Jesus said, yes, it's one mission. It's one thing. So after Jesus goes to heaven, 2 Corinthians tells us that God has called called us into that mission. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against him, and he's committed to us what? The message of reconciliation. We have one mission. God has given us one mission. And it's look, it's the nature of all organizations to drift off mission. I don't care what you're talking about. You're talking about a fast food restaurant, you're talking about a nation, you're talking about a company, you're talking about a family, or you're talking about a church. Anywhere where people gather together in an organized way, it is the tendency of that group to, to, uh, it's called mission drift, to drift off mission. And the church is not immune to that tendency. So let me give you uh, some research that was done on this several years ago. When asked, what do you think the purpose of the church is, let me tell you what 89% of church members said. 89% of church members believe the church exists to take care of my family's needs and my needs. 89%. 11% of the church members said that the church existed to win the world to Christ. You see the conflict? So let me tell you how that might play out in church life. Can you imagine for a minute somebody in a church saying, "I was in the hospital and my pastor didn't come see me, and I'm mad, I'm offended." And can you imagine if that pastor uh, were to respond to him, "I'm so sorry I couldn't come see you. I was trying to figure out how to reach our community." How do you think that'd go over? So, so what's the mission? What's the mission? That's an important question that we need to ask. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said something very important about this. Now, just to give you a little context on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who he was, so you'll understand the power of what I'm about to share that he said. He was a German pastor and a theologian in the time of Adolf Hitler's reign. And he was a staunch and vocal resistor to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi agenda. He was imprisoned for a year and a half and ultimately executed for his resistance. And let me tell you what he said. He said the church is only the church when it exists for others. The church is only the church when it exists for others. So four and a half, five years ago, God began to do an incredible work of spiritual renewal inside our church incredible renewal, powerful renewal. The question is why. God didn't do renewal in our church to save our church or fix our church or so that we'd experience God better. God did an incredible work of renewal and is doing an incredible work of renewal in our church. It's not even about us. It's so that Shelby County might be touched. That's what it's for. And here's the thing, if we embrace that renewal and spend it all on ourself, it will die. And do you know how I know that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if you try to keep your life, you will lose it. If you give your life away, you will save it. Anybody with me today? That's a scriptural principle. The person who tries to save their own soul will lose it, but the one who gives it away, if you will take what God is giving you and you will give it away, you will find more life and more purpose and more joy and passion than you ever will just by trying to get yourself fixed. Last summer, I had an incredible joy. I was at um, our beach camp. And it, we took a huge group. It was, I think, the biggest group we ever taken—115 100, or 20, or maybe maybe a couple more—massive group of teenagers. You hadn't seen, you know, hormones and chemicals flowing, adrenaline, until you've been in a camp with 120 teenagers. I mean, it is it is a sight. But let me tell you, there's one moment in that camp that I will never forget as long as I live. The last night of camp, after service, Pastor Jeremy said, hey, let's meet over at this swimming pool and we're going we're gonna to have water baptism. And we went to that pool and 115, 20 kids and chaperones lined around that pool. There wasn't a place to sit. They were stacked too, too deep, huddled around that giant, giant swimming pool. And one by one, small group leaders and different pastors... And different people would call kids in the pool who had decided they wanted to be baptized. That night, we baptized 24 people, 24 teenagers. And I'm going to tell you, it's one of the most powerful moments of my life. Because right in the middle of it, my niece, who two years ago I talked to about water baptism and she didn't even understand what it is. She said, "Like, why, why do you have to go under the water?" She didn't. She had no context. She came to our camp, and two years later, she came back. And in those two years, the Holy Spirit had taken the seeds He had planted in her heart, and He had started to grow them. And she said, when she came to our camp this summer, she said, "Hey, I'm. Can you help me understand the Bible?" She said, "I've read 14 books." And she showed me her Bible, it's highlighted, lines under it. Something incredible changed in her life. And she said, "Would you baptize me?" baptize you. I'll baptize you and go to heaven now. (laughs) Will you baptize me? It wrecked my soul. I stood in that pool watching kid after kid after kid, and I said, God, you've given us one mission, and this is what it is, and there's nothing better there's nothing better than this mission that you've given us. I think most Christians want to make a difference. I really do. I've been around the church a long time, all my adult life. And I think most Christians really want to make a difference. I think they just don't know how. Because the culture's changed so much, so fast, it feels like the floor's dropped out from under us. And for a lot of people, I think it just comes down to well, I don't know what to say. So. There's this incredible story in the Bible about a woman who Jesus met at a well, the Samaritan woman. He gives her living water. She finds forgiveness in Jesus. And after she meets Jesus, I want you to see the first thing that she did. John 4, 29. She went back to her town. She went back to her village. And she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward Him. And if you follow the story, many of the people in that village began to follow Jesus. They found the same forgiveness she found. So after her life was changed, the next thing she did is, is went back to her town, and she said, come and see. At Kingwood, we say it like this, changed people change the world. So when your life has been changed by Jesus it starts to make an effect, a ripple effect, like a rock and a pond on those around you. When you meet Jesus and your life is changed, it starts to change the way you interact. So let me ask if you're a Christian this morning. Everybody might not be Christian. That's okay. I, I hope everybody here is not a Christian. If everybody here is a Christian, we got a problem. Right? So for those of you who are Christians, who say, I'm a Christian... How many of you would say, when you became a Christian, your life improved? Now, not, this isn't rhetorical, and it's not, I'm not trying to tell you to say something you don't want to say. But when you became a Christian, your life improved. How many of you would say that that are Christians? Did you say your life improved? Okay, okay, it improved. So, I mean, it looks, looks unanimous to me. What about the people in our community how many of the people in our community do you think their life would improve if they found forgiveness in Jesus? I mean do you do you, do you think a lot of their problems I'm not saying it would fix everything it doesn't fix everything cuz you're Christians your life's not totally fixed is it? Mine's not. So it doesn't fix everything. But do you believe the people in our community who don't know don't have a relationship with Jesus, do you think if they found forgiveness, do you think their life would improve? Well, the Samaritan woman invited her family and friends to meet Jesus, and not only did it change her life, it changed a lot of the lives of the people around her as well. And her invitation changed their lives. Now, the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism. And Lifeway did a study, and they found out, do you know what the most effective method, now that the floor's dropped out, and we're not in a Christian culture anymore, and all of that stuff. We have electricity and Wi-Fi and all that. Do you know what they found is the single most effective way to get a person to come to church to hear the gospel? Do you know what the single most effective way is? An invitation from a family member. And the second most effective way that's just... Fractionally behind that is the invitation from a friend. And all of the third method cuts in half, and every other method goes straight downhill from there like advertising and all that stuff. You can forget all that, that goes way downhill. But the invitation from a family member or a friend is, and you know how we know it works? Last Easter, we were able to mobilize the life groups and those of you who are in life groups in our church to pray for and invite your friends to Easter. And do you know, we prayed for 420 different people. And do you know, last Easter, our guest attendance almost doubled. And we had people who came and heard the gospel. They came to see this man, Jesus. And do you know what happened just last month? I know it works because our teenagers reached out to their teenage friends and invited them to a bonfire and a s'more night. They got rained out. We had no bonfire. It wasn't, they call it bow s'more. It wasn't bow s'more. it was smoke. We had no bow. But do you know what happened despite the rain, despite the bad weather, despite no bonfire, when they invited their friends 172 young people came to that service, 172. And do you know how many of them made a decision that night to give their life to Jesus? 25, 25. So this is gonna sound very intimidating, but I promise you it'll take just a couple minutes I want to give you five ways this morning to be a good inviter. You ready? Number one, pray. Everything starts with prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, who around me, what family member, what neighbor, what friend, what person that I run into at the restaurant or the guy, Lord, who around me are you calling me to talk to? pray. And then pray for them. When the Holy Spirit lays somebody on your heart, pray for them. Intercede for them. Put them on your prayer list. Every time you do devotions, you should be calling their name out. Lord, I pray for this person now. God, I pray that you'd soften their heart. I pray that you'd open their eyes. I pray that you'd give them a divine appointment. And pray for them. Lord, I pray you would meet their needs. I pray you would bless them. You don't have to be saved to be blessed. You know that, don't you? You just have to be prayed for. God, I pray you'd bless them today and show them the goodness of God. Pray. Number two, look for people who will be open to your invitation. Listen, the next four points are all basically going to say one one thing. The invitation can't be about you and the invitation can't be about your church. The invitation has to be about them. It has to be that you care about them and you're trying to show them that God cares about them. So how do you do that? Look for people who'll be open to your invitation. Is there a way that your invitation relates to the work of God? Hey, I, we've got a play at our church, and I just thought uh, about you because I know last month you mentioned to me that you'd been praying. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know—I didn't know if you prayed or not. And so when I heard that, I thought, man, this play might really be might really, really be uh, uh, might really impact you. Would you consider bringing your family and coming? It's got to have something to do with the work God's already doing in their life. Here's number three. Look for ways to affirm their life or openness. Why, hey, I, I remember you telling me that your daughter had a play she was in, and I thought she might like to come see a play our church is doing. See, it's about them. I know your family loves the arts. You know, why don't you guys come out? It's a, it's a great play. We've been doing it for 32 years. There's over 100 people in the cast. It's like Broadway style. You'd, you'd love it. I know your kids, you know, you've got an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old, and, and my kids are about that age, and they love it. Matter of fact, one of my kids is in the play, or whatever. Don't lie if they're not. You know what I'm saying? But, but you, want, you want to say, look, here, here's a bridge. Number four, look for people in need you can relate to. Watch, how, how does that look? I know you guys have been going through a lot. I know it's been a hard time. And this play is fun, and it's funny, and it's moving. And I just thought it would encourage you. I remember when our family was going through whatever. And let me tell you about a person that reached out to me. And I can't tell you how encouraging it was to, to me and my family at that moment and I just thought about you you see how that works number five look for ways to remove the two biggest fears unchurched people have do you know the two biggest fears unchurched people have about coming to church that they will be judged or they'll be pressured that's the two biggest fears And they don't, they don't know us do they <laughs> If the, see that's a trick the enemy plays on people to separate them from the answer because they don't know, they're not gonna be judged here. Judged, you kidding me? Judge, you don't be judged here. You have been judged here? Anybody been judged here? They'll be judged here. But that's what the enemy keeps telling them. And that's what the culture keeps telling them. So you gotta you gotta defeat that in their mind. Pressure, you're gonna be pressured. Okay, listen. Hey, this is a great play, it's fun, it's funny, you're gonna have a good time, um, it's free. And look, they're going to take an offering at the end of the play, but that's just to help people in our community who need it. But you have, you're have you not pressured to give. You're not pressured to do anything. Nobody's going to press you to do anything. We just want you to come and have a good time. And let's let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Right? You don't have to make people do anything. So maybe it'll help to say it's not a stuffy church play. I remember when my wife invited me to Scrooge. I remember... In the early 90s, like 1991 or 92, I, I was dating her and I came home to meet her family and she said, oh, there's a play at our church. And I thought, oh, yay. I was thinking I'd rather go out with you. <laughs> right? I don't want to go see no dumb church play. And let me tell you, that night I went, and of course they sat me on the front row, you know, so I just have, And I'm telling you, it blew my Mind. I had no idea a church could do anything like that. And so people don't know. People don't know all that stuff. I didn't know it. I was in Bible college training for ministry. I thought, you, a church play. Great. Fun will that be. But listen, if you think we're just going to sit in here and pray hard enough that people are just going to show up by themselves, you're going to wait a long time it's not happening you know and now you say well what does that mean god doesn't answer prayer of course god answers prayer does that mean god's not moving on people outside yes of course he's moving on people they just don't know what to do with it 30 years ago when a person god was moving on a person's heart outside the church you know what they do they would go to a church they'd go to a pastor they'd go to a christian friend and they'd talk about it i don't know what to do with this because the people in the culture were one step outside the church. Now they're about three. So now when the Holy Spirit works on them, you know what they do? They Google it. And God knows what they find when they Google it. Or they search another religion. Or they search a menu of religions. They don't know what to do with it. So we as the church have to say, Do you think maybe, do you think maybe that might be God? showing you He's close? Do you think that might be God telling you He loves you? We have to help define it for them because they don't know what it is. They must be invited. People, by and large, have lost trust in institutions and they've lost trust in leadership. But let me tell you what they do still trust. The people they know. And that is how the Holy Spirit Will send the church in America in the 21st century on mission let me tell you the difference between I've read all the research let me tell you the difference in churches in America that are reaching their community and churches in America that are not reaching their community churches in America that are reaching their community invite people to church churches that don't reach their community don't invite people it's that simple so I want to tell you this as long as I'm your pastor You say, how long are we going to have to hear this? Well, till I retire or die. Because we got one mission. We got one mission. And as long as we still have one mission, and if we think we know the best way to do that mission, then I'm going to implore you and challenge you and encourage you. Reach out to the people that you know and invite them to come and see this Jesus who changed your life. And let me tell you why. Because when I was a teenager and I was lost and I was 15, I had some friends in my English class and at my local school who reached out to me and invited me to church, to youth group with them and to church with them. It's a long story, but I'll tell you something. I want every teenager in the room, every, don't ever underestimate the ability that you have to be used by God to touch somebody else's life because I'm a Christian today because some teenagers took some time to love me and care about me and invite me and pray for me and they were patient with me and I'm telling you, it changed my life. So if you want to know why I'll encourage you and challenge you, it's because I wouldn't be here if somebody didn't encourage it and challenge those kids. I don't even know how they got it, but they were on mission. And I have found forgiveness and joy in Jesus because they were. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to ask our prayer team if you'd come, and I want to ask you if you'd close your eyes and open your hearts. Here's what I know. I know there are people in the room today who are saying, I'd love to do the mission, but you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how I'm hurting. You don't know what happened last night. I'm trying to hold my marriage together. I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep my job. I'm suffering. Sick battling. I want to tell you something. God loves you. And He doesn't just want to use you for some plan to grow anything. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. I know that because He loved me. He touched my life. And I just want to say today, I was thinking about the baby dedication we did. The family who's celebrating the joy of a little girl and at the same time suffering through the pain of a battle with cancer in their family. Boy, life's like that. You might be hurting today. You might have a need. I want to ask you today, if you have a need, we want to pray for you. We want to extend the mission of Jesus to you before it goes through you. And so today, if you have a need, I'm going to begin to pray, and as I do, I want you to respond and let our prayer team minister to you. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would begin to draw everyone in this room who has a need, needs to know your love, needs to know your presence, needs to know your peace, needs an answer. Come on as I pray. I want you to come right now. If you need prayer, I want you to let the prayer team minister to you. You need to know the love of God. You need to know the peace of God. You need an answer. You have a decision to make. You don't know what to do. I'm telling you, God loves you today and He wants to wrap His arms around you and He wants to minister to you and He wants to give you peace. He wants to give you direction. He wants to give you a full life. Lord, I pray you would meet us here. If you need to to meet with God in prayer, I want you to come right now. I want you to come right now. Let us minister to you. Let our prayer team just minister to you, encourage you, strengthen you. As you leave this place today, I want you to leave encouraged and empowered and strengthened and ministered to. The life of God flows through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the church. And you let the power of God touch you today. As as those continue to come for prayer, here's what I want everybody else to do. I want you to take the invitation that I gave you. If you're not coming then what that tells me is your needs are met. And if your needs are met, then I want you to raise this invitation up in the air. And I want us to pray together. Would you just pick it up? Everybody should have one, or most everybody should have one. Would you just pick that little red circle up, that little invitation? Would you just hold it up in the air for a minute? We're going to pray together, okay? Would you just hold it up when you get it? Let's pray together this morning. I want to pray for you. I want to pray what we prayed before we started preaching that you would see what God sees and you would seek what God seeks. Holy Spirit I pray today for every person holding an invitation in their hand. Lord for those who can't find one close to them. God I pray that you would let us today hear your call hear your call to see what you see and to seek what you seek. You came to seek and save the lost. Send us into this community in this season to offer hope to offer encouragement, Lord, to offer an invitation to come and meet a man who changed my life. God, I pray today you would equip us and empower us and send us into Shelby County. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, God bless you. I'm glad you're here today. Don't forget tonight at 5.30 we have Soak. And we'll share communion.